When my kids were young, one of the things that my wife Stephanie and I loved to do was to read them Bible stories as they were going to bed. And so when Sadie was probably four or five years old, we would read uh, her stories to her from the Beginner's Bible. And Steph and I were cleaning out some things around the house recently. We came across this Beginner's Bible, and I opened it up to Jonah, because we've been in this series, and I had a chance to, to read through it. And um, I thought that uh, today might be a, an appropriate way to start this message by reading to you the story of Jonah from the Beginner's Bible. And the reason for that is today, uh, if, if you're just joining us, we're wrapping up this series on Jonah. We've been here the last four weeks, and I thought this might be a good summary. So I want you to hear the words of uh, Jonah according to the Beginner's Bible. And if you joined us in week two, uh, you know that I already have a problem with the title of this because uh, it's called Jonah and the Big Fish. But, but here's, the, here's the story uh, of Jonah from this version. It says, Jonah was a prophet of God. One day God told Jonah, go to the big city of Nineveh, tell them to stop doing bad things. But Jonah ran away. He did not want to go to Nineveh. Instead, he got on a boat to sail across the sea. God sent a big storm to stop Jonah. The sailors on the boat were afraid. They thought the boat was going to sink. Jonah told the sailors, My God has sent this storm. If you throw me into the water, the sea will become calm again. So the sailors threw Jonah into the raging sea. Instantly, the sea became calm. Just then, Jonah coming. Gulp, the fish swallowed Jonah. For three days and nights, Jonah was inside the fish. He prayed to God, please forgive me. Then God told the fish to spin Jonah onto the dry land. And I, I, love, I love the illustration here. Uh, so you have, you have the fish just giving a huge, a huge little spit out to, uh, to Jonah. His tongue sticking out. This is so fun. Uh, and, uh, and he gets on the dry land. And, and God told Jonah a second time, go and tell the people of Nineveh to stop doing bad things. This time, Jonah obeyed God. The people in Nineveh were sorry for doing bad things, so God forgave them. And so that's a cute version of, of the story of Jonah, and it kind of recaps where we've been the last three weeks. Uh, but did you catch something that uh, you thought was maybe missing from that story? There's no chapter four. The story of Jonah does not end with him preaching to the people of Nineveh. And I'm not trying to pick on the beginner's Bible, because chapter 4 that we're going to see today has some, has some odd things in it. There's a plant and a worm, and, and, and God says some things that seem a little bit strange, and so it's probably hard to, to tell kids that story. But here's, here's the problem I have with that, is that far too often people that think they know the story of Jonah only know this version of the story. And the, the, the challenge with that is then we can walk away from Jonah and think that the story of Jonah is like he's some sort of spiritual superhero. That, that he had this calling from God, and he, he kind of ran from God, and then had this weird experience in a fish, and then he, he goes and preaches, and then the whole city comes to, to faith, and everything is, is great. And, and we would totally miss the complexity and the depth of Jonah, and chapter 4 is what allows the story of Jonah to become really relevant in our lives. Because we understand that where we've been finding Jonah is actually in us. We're kind of like Jonah. And chapter 4 is what brings all of that together. So you can't miss Jonah chapter 4 as you go through the story of Jonah. So we're not going to do that today. So if you have a Bible, I want you to open up to Jonah chapter 4. I'm going to use uh, the, the full version of, of the Bible. Uh, mine doesn't have pictures in it, but, um, but, but it does have the Word of God. And uh, it's a powerful place where we're going to find ourselves here today. 
So we're going to pick up in Jonah chapter 4, right actually where the beginner's Bible story leaves off. Jonah did go to the place of the city of Nineveh, and there he did preach to the people, and they responded. They did repent. And so God says in his word that he did not bring upon the people of Nineveh the destruction that he had threatened. And that's where we pick the story up in Jonah 4, verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah is angry. And, And I love what Eugene Peterson says about this passage of Jonah is that anger is often a diagnostic tool. That when we're angry about something, it lets us know that there's something wrong or that there's something broken with us. And for Jonah, that was true. Jonah is wrong about something. Something is wrong within him. Something is broken within Jonah. And it's manifesting itself in anger. And Jonah is angry about the same thing that at times you and I get angry about. The the, the thing that's wrong with Jonah, the thing that's broken with Jonah, is the same thing that can be wrong and broken with us, and the same thing that has been wrong and broken with humanity since the beginning of humanity. Jonah is angry about the thing that you and I get angry with God about. Control. There there is a wrestle for control that is happening right here in Jonah chapter 4. Jonah is angry that God is in control and he's not. And he's angry because God is not doing what Jonah thinks God ought to do. For Jonah, he sees the city of Nineveh as these evil people that are deserving of God's wrath. And God doesn't bring that to them. And that makes him angry. He's saying, God, the people of Nineveh are a threat to me and they're a threat to your own people of Israel. And so you need to remove the people of Nineveh. Life would be better for us if they were out of the picture. And God chooses not to do that and it makes Jonah mad. And you and I get mad about very similar things. There are, there are things or people or situations in our lives that we honestly believe our life would be better if God would just remove that thing from our life. I mean, there are some of you right now who, just to be really honest, you have a terrible marriage. And you are convinced that if your spouse would just leave, your life would be better. Or some of you are having a really hard time at work, and you're convinced that the problem is your boss. If your boss would just leave, your work life would be better. Or maybe some of you are living at home, and you're like, it would be better if I left. Like, I can't, I can't stand living under my parents' roof anymore, and their rules, and their restrictions, and it's just so hard, and I can't wait until I leave. In fact, some of you maybe have, you've even set a date about when you're going to leave. It's like a timeline. You're like, listen, when I turn 40, I'm finally moving out of mom and dad's home, right? But, but we have this idea that if something gets out of our life, our life would be better. Maybe it's not a person. Maybe it's more like a, like a politician or a political group, and you're just convinced that everything in our country would be better if, if so-and-so was out of office or, or such-and-such group didn't have power anymore, or maybe it's even an ideology. Like you think that, that the things that are being taught in schools or the values that certain people have in society that are, that are being shared broadly, that if those things were just removed and they went away, then everything would be better. And that hasn't happened. And honestly, you're mad about it. 
But so often, we're not like Jonah. We don't take our anger out directly to God, but we get angry about things that represent those things that we're angry about. And so we're not in control, and so we kind of lash out at others who are or seem to be, and so it's like, oh, it's the school board's fault. Like, they're just so narrow-minded. Why can't they figure this out? Or we get, we get mad about senior management. You know, it's, it's oh, they, why don't they understand this? Or some of you get mad at the church. I, people will, will come up to me and be like, if you would just preach a sermon on this, like, everything would get better. And, and here's the reality, and you know this to be true. Like, solutions are never this simple, right? I, like, if, when you move out of mom and dad's home and you start paying rent for the first time, what you're going to find is that some of the things your parents were, you know, irritating you about were kind of right. And if you get a new boss at work, like, you're going to have somebody that may be worse than your previous boss. There's no guarantee. And the reality is, if I thought I could solve a lot of problems by preaching, I would just do it more often. But those aren't even the issues. See, the issue when we wrestle for control is never with our head. It's not what we know. It's with our heart. That was Jonah's issue. That's our issue. Here's the reality. You're probably not wrong about the things that you're angry about. The things that that you see being taught or being promoted, the things that you're dealing with in in, in your school or your place of employment or your neighborhood, those things that you're upset about, you're probably not wrong about those things. But it's, it's not about having the right knowledge. It's about our heart not being in the right place. That was Jonah's issue. See, Jonah, his theology was correct about who God was. He knew the right things about God. In verse 2, when Jonah says this, at the end of verse 2, when he says, I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Jonah is using God's own words against him. That, what Jonah is saying right there, is a direct quote from Exodus. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. It's when God is describing his nature and his character. So Jonah's issue wasn't with his head, but it was with his heart, because here's the thing, Jonah didn't finish the quote. If he would have finished and continued to quote Exodus 34, verse 7, he would have remembered and would have gone on to say that in addition to God being kind and compassionate and all the things that he lists there, God also does not allow the guilty to go unpunished. But Jonah doesn't bring that up. Because oftentimes in our anger for the realization that we're not in control and God is and it makes us mad, we can reduce God down to an oversimplified version of who he is. So rather than see God for the depth and the complexity and the the grand plan of what he's doing, we just reduce him down because we're mad about something. And so it's like, you know, God, all you are in the midst of this is you're just absent. That's just who you are. You're just, you're just, you know, I call out to you and you don't answer me and you're just absent. That's, that's all you are, God, you're just absent. Or God, you're just cruel. That's all you are. You just, you just allow me to go through hardships because you're trying to punish me and that's just, that's just your nature. You're just a cruel God. Or, or, or it's like, God, all, all you are is you're just aloof. Like you're not even paying attention to what's going on around here. How could you not even know what we're dealing with? Or in Jonah's case, he's like, God, all you are is you are a compassionate pushover. These evil people say they're sorry one time and you don't bring destruction on them. God, that's all you are. You're just reduced to this one simple thing and I'm done. And so often that can be us. But I love how God responds. God doesn't get down and have like a point-by-point argument with Jonah. He doesn't do that with you and me either. 
God just, God just sits there and, and allows us to, to kind of pour our anger out or lets Jonah pour his anger out. And then he just, he just leans in and he asks a question. It's in verse 4. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Just leans in. Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah, you who ran from me, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah, you who ran from me, who then caused a storm to come upon a whole group of sailors that put their life at risk, is it it right for you to be angry? Hey, Jonah, when when you were thrown overboard because of the storm, and that was the only way to stop it because I was trying to not pay you back but to bring you back, is it right for you to be angry? When you were drowning in the ocean, Jonah, and I provided a fish to come and preserve your life, is it right for you to be angry? When when you had had enough time in that fish, I I called that fish to to give you up, Jonah, so that you could You could have new life. Is it it right for you to be angry? Jonah, when I came to you a second time and gave you another opportunity to do what I asked you to do the first time and you finally did it, is it right for you, Jonah, to be angry? And Jonah never responds. He just runs away again. That's what Jonah does. He's He's a guy who runs. He runs. This time he doesn't run far. He just runs outside the city and there he sits and he pouts. He's having a little pity party for himself. It's verse 5. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made for him a shelter and sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. He's just just kind of waiting. He's like, okay, God, are you going to get your act together and finally do what I think you should do? But then Jonah's situation changes. Verse 6. Then the Lord provided a, a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. So things have changed, and Jonah's mood's improving. He's feeling a little bit better about things. Verse 7, But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. Okay, so our friend Jonah is pretty emotional at this point. What is going on with Jonah and this plant and this whole situation? Well, Jonah was a prophet of God. And the prophets in these days were people that God would speak to and then they would say what God said or they would do what God told them to do. But at other times, the prophets would have certain experiences. God would allow things to happen in their life that were aimed and designed to teach a spiritual truth or a spiritual reality for God's people. So for instance, there was another prophet in Israel by the name of Hosea. And God told Hosea that he was to marry a woman that he knew in advance would not be faithful to him. So he married her anyway. They started having a family. They had children. And then this woman began to be incredibly unfaithful. She cheated on him with all of these different guys all throughout the village, all throughout the town. Everybody knew about it. It got so bad that at one point she was actually living in the home of another man in town. And God told Hosea, just let it happen. Just You continue to be faithful to her. You just let this thing happen. And then he said, okay, now go get your, now go get your wife. And so in order for Hosea to get his own wife back, he had to go and pay this man that she was living with so that, that he would release her. I mean, can you imagine? And for have his unfaithful wife come back to live in his house. And the whole reason that God did that was not to give us marriage advice. That was not the purpose of this. It was to say, 
this is about me. This is about my nature and my character. That's, that's what God was telling the people. And, and he's saying, you are like the unfaithful spouse. But he said, I am like the faithful one. And even though you have been unfaithful, I will continue to be faithful to you, and I will go get you and bring you back home to be with me at a great cost to myself. And so Hosea had this experience to teach the people of God about the nature and the character and the heart of God. The same thing's happening with Jonah and this plant. I believe that the plant represents the land of Israel. The land of Israel was this amazing gift that God had given to his people. And he wanted them to have it so that they could prosper, so that they could have a comfort, they could have a home. And the people of Israel loved the gift. They loved the land. The land was awesome, and it gave them great and tremendous comfort. But what started happening is they started to value the comfort more than the comforter. They loved the gift more than the giver. And God said, don't let this happen. You need to trust me, not in the land. Don't trust in yourself. But they didn't listen. And over time, the people got so fixated on the comfort from the land, they totally forgot about being faithful to God. And they even started having this mindset that they were entitled to the comfort of the land and that God was obligated to continue to allow it to happen. And so when the worm comes and eats the plant, it's like God letting, letting Jonah know, I'm going to take the land away from my people and I'm going to take it away at the hands of a worm who are the Ninevites. It was the capital city of Assyria, and we know that later the Assyrians did just that. They, they collected God's people. They, they took them out of that land and scattered them all over the place as, as a part of judgment for them not being faithful to what God had called them to do. And so Jonah, when he recognizes that that's what this is really all about, he becomes so angry. In the midst of, of that realization, God asks his question again, verse 9. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And this time Jonah answers. It is, he said. I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. Jonah's like, listen, God, if this is how this is going to be, I'm out. Like, if, if I'm going to have to go through life, if we're going to have to go through life without the comfort that you have provided to us, we are done. I'm done here. I want nothing to do with this. Because what we see in Jonah is what is in you and me. We are people who prefer our comforts. And we really want to avoid, at almost all cost, situations that are uncomfortable for us. We try to remove ourselves from situations of discomfort. The summer after I graduated high school, I needed to get a job just to make some money for college. And so I, I was able to get hired at the Coca-Cola bottling plant. It was near our house and uh, it paid really well for somebody that had just graduated from high school. But the problem was I was like one of the only summer employees and I was like the only one my age and I was working with all of these seasoned warehouse guys and they had no patience or, or time for me. It was kind of a rough group of guys and I had to work second shift so it was odd hours and I was working late and the work was hard. It was just difficult work and I didn't know what I was doing in the warehouse with all the stuff I had to do and I hated it. I hated this job. It was so uncomfortable being there. And so a couple days into the job, I was like, I don't know that I'm going to make it. I think I just may quit this job. Uh, but then my second week, our, our shift supervisor came to me and he said, hey, Kyle, I need you to come with me today. You have a special assignment. And so we, we got out of the warehouse, which I was grateful for, and we went across the property to another warehouse that I'd never been to before. 
And we walk in, and he hands me a mop and some gloves, and he said, there was an accident. Forklift knocked over some bottles of soda. I need you to clean it up. And then, then he goes, I'll see you in six or eight hours. And he leaves. And I walk into this warehouse, and it's totally empty. And sure enough, a forklift had run into a whole stack, I mean, this like 15, 20-foot stack of bottles of orange Fanta. And when the orange Fanta fell, they clipped some of the other stacks of Minute Maid lemonade. And so these things, as they fell to the concrete floor, they shattered. And so there are hundreds, maybe thousands of these 20-ounce bottles of soda that are just scattered everywhere in this warehouse. And there's this like soupy sludge on the floor that's several inches deep of like a mixture of orange Fanta and lemonade. It was disgusting. And I had to clean it up. And I knew right then, I'm done. Like, I am done with this job. I am quitting this job. And, uh, and I did. A couple days later, I, I quit that job. My parents tried to talk me out of it. They were like, this will be good for, you know, learning hard work and dedication. And, uh, but I was 18, and um, my, my parents weren't very smart when I was 18. Something happened as I got into my 20s where they got a lot smarter, uh, but that had, hadn't happened to them yet, and uh, I didn't listen. And so I just bailed on this job. And because of that, I had to take multiple jobs that summer and worked way more hours than I ever would have worked at Coke and made way less money than I would have if I just would have been able to figure out how to endure an uncomfortable situation. But that's like not in our nature. We can become entitled to comfort and think that if we're in an uncomfortable situation that we should do everything we can to get out of it. But that is not what God is calling us to do. And that's why Jonah chapter 4 and the book of Jonah ends with a question. Because God gets the last word. And the last word he chooses is the third question he asks. So here it is, verse 10. But the Lord said to Jonah, You've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell the right hand from their left, and also many animals? See, Jonah, God's saying, you're all concerned about the plant. I'm concerned about the people. Jonah, you're all focused on your comfort. I am focused on your calling. And folks, that question and the reason the book of Jonah ends with a question is because that question was for Jonah, but not just for Jonah. It's a question that God is asking for you and me today. He is looking at us and he's asking us, if I am concerned about people who are far from me, should you not be concerned about people who are far from me? And the realization is that is going to lead us into places that are going to be incredibly uncomfortable. But here's the big idea. We are to focus not on our comfort, but on our calling. That's the big idea. We are to focus on the calling that God has for you and for me and not on our comfort. And I just I have to tell you this. Things are going to become increasingly uncomfortable for us as followers of Jesus in our culture. This summer, as, as I was on sabbatical and learning about how we do ministry in a post-Christian context, one of the big ahas I have realized is that 
this idea of becoming increasingly secular in our culture, it's just growing. It's going to continue. You're going to continue to read report after report of belief in God to go down, church attendance to go down, uh, belief in the Bible to go down. That's just, that is going to happen increasingly in our culture. And as that happens, what will happen with you and me is that we're going to move from being where I think at one point maybe we, we were in more of the middle of culture. It was just kind of normative that you know, going to church was like a normal thing and a lot of people did it and people had respect for the Bible and all of those things. That's just not going to be true anymore. It's already not happening and it's just going to increase and we're going to be brushed more and more from what maybe once was a middle of culture to the margins. And we're going to be pushed aside. People are going to view us as being antiquated. They're going to view us as being harmful. They're going to view us as being the problem. We're going to be blamed for a lot of things all because we believe in Jesus Christ and we hold fast to the word that God has given to us that are actually words of life. But because they don't align with some of the values of our society, we're just going to be marginalized. And I have to tell you, as that happens, it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be hard for you in your place of employment, in school. It's going to be hard to watch your kids go through this. It's going to be hard to watch your grandkids go through this. But listen, there is hope in the midst of it because the church of Jesus Christ was built to do ministry from the margins. That's how we've been designed. Because it's from the margins, not the middle, that we're not the most popular, but we trust the most in God. And it may be the most uncomfortable place for us to be, but it's there where we are called to be. And when we are in our calling, God works in powerful and mighty and significant ways. But it's going to be uncomfortable. I know for many of us, we're in places where we see People in culture who, morally speaking, do not know their right hand from their left. They're confused about those things. You know, when, when God says that, he has compassion for those people, so we too need to have compassion. The, the Apostle Paul says something similar in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He says that, that, that the God of this age has blinded people from the truth. Those who are unbelievers have been blinded to the knowledge of who Christ is. Folks, the, the, the people who are in power, the people who are, who are in culture, they, they, don't, they don't even understand the right hand from their left. And God has said, I have sent you as my people to know the truth and to be a witness, to be present among them. And that's the calling that we have. When I was in London for part of my sabbatical, I, I had the privilege of hearing Glenn Shrivner speak. Glenn is an evangelist. He's an apologist. He's somebody that I, I followed his work for uh, several years, and uh, he was he was speaking at this uh, this event, and, and then I had a chance to meet with him afterwards. And, uh, and and Glenn was born in Australia, but he lives in England. So officially, his accent is awesome, and he is a great guy to listen to. And uh, we had this incredible conversation afterwards. I was so excited. I ran up to him and. Uh, I was like, okay, Glenn, here's the deal. Like, uh, thanks for meeting with me, and, and I'm, I'm a pastor from, from the States, and uh, I have all these questions about ministry in a post-Christian context, and you're an evangelist, so what are you seeing? How is it working? How, how, do you, how do you lead people to the Lord in the midst of, of a secular nation, and what do I need to know? How do we get ahead of this? I told him about Wooddale. I mean, just like all of these things. And, uh, and Glenn just kind of sat there, and, and he, he said, um, he said let, let, me, let me answer by telling you a story. And so Glenn said, about eight years ago, he was at a university in England, and there was an apologetics conference that was going on. Christianity was being presented, and there was a, a live Q&A session at the end. Uh, and so there was a student 
who was asking questions of the Christian speaker up on stage, and this student was one of those like new atheists that was just very antagonistic against Christianity. And so these weren't questions, but accusations. And, and the student was just bombarding the speaker with all sorts of, of things like, Christianity is outdated, and, and, it's, and it's hateful, and you're anti this, and look at all the moral failures, and look at all the hypocrisy, and just, I mean, just every, you know, everything, just kind of th- this onslaught. And he said the speaker on stage was, was kind of trying to, to do his best, but he wasn't doing a very good job. And then he started engaging in a back and forth, and it just got really ugly. And he said, thankfully, they ran out of time, and the session had to end. And Glenn turned to the student who was next to him in the auditorium. And he said, uh, well, what'd you think about that session? And the student turned to him and said, well, listen, I'm not a Christian, but I really don't care about anything that that student was yelling about in the microphone. He said, um, He said, my grandfather died last week, and I've just been questioning the meaning and the purpose of life. And so I came today because I was just curious, does Christianity have anything to say about that? And Glenn said for the next several hours, he met with this student, and they talked, and they dialogued, got his contact information, he stayed in touch, and that student eventually put his faith in Jesus Christ. He found a local church, he was baptized, Later, he ended up getting married, his uh, child was born, and that, that family is now raising their child in a local church in England. Eight years later, still walking with Jesus. And Glenn said, that whole experience taught me a valuable lesson. He said, the lesson is that the person with the microphone does not speak for the room. He said, there are people in our culture today who are yelling into the microphone of culture. They're on Twitter, they're in the comment sections of news articles, they're people who are in prominent positions in the media, and they're all yelling about things that they're passionate about and how angry they are about Christianity and how wrong it is, and and, and they're advocating all these other things. And he said the temptation for us is that we will respond to those who are yelling in the microphone. And he said we can't do it that way. And he said because they're not speaking for everybody else in culture. He said the vast majority of people in culture are not concerned about what those few loud people are yelling about. He said the vast majority of people in culture are just dealing with personal hurts. And all they want to know is does Jesus have anything to say about their hurt? And then he leaned in, it was was dramatic, he like leaned into me and he goes, you want to know the secret of ministry in a post-Christian context? Here it is. Trust the gospel. We have the only good news. And I needed to hear that. Wooddale, I think we needed to hear that. Because there are so many people who are yelling about the things of culture and they're, they're, you're yelling into the places of culture and into the microphones of culture and it's being amplified and it's so uncomfortable. And there is a tendency for us to either yell back or there's a tendency for us to be like Jonah and run from them. And God is saying, I have not called you to comfort. I have not called you to run. I have called you to stay. Your calling is to help show them the right way. They are confused. They don't know their right hand from their left. And it's going to lead to destruction. So I am sending you to them. And folks, that is our calling, even though it's going to be very uncomfortable. Here's the significance of this. After last week's message, uh, several of you asked me, hey, whatever happened to the Ninevites? 
You know, they, they repented, but whatever, whatever came of them? Uh, and that's a great question. We actually do read more about Nineveh later on in Scripture. So about a hundred years after Jonah, there was another prophet who also wrote about Nineveh. And that prophet's name was Nahum. And so we see a hundred years later, a hundred years removed from the time of, of Jonah, what happened to the city of Nineveh. Here's what Nahum writes in, uh, in, in, in three of, of the book that's by his name in, in chapter three. Uh, just a few verses. Here's how he describes the city of Nineveh 100 years later. He writes, Woe to you, city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords and glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses. I mean, that sounds a whole lot like Nineveh before Jonah got there. And so it seems that the repentance that we see from the people of Nineveh didn't stick. And I wonder if the reason it didn't stick is because Jonah didn't stay. It was just too uncomfortable for him. Folks, God is calling us to stay. To stay engaged, to stay in relationship with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with, with those in our communities, to be a witness, to be a presence, to help those who are so confused that they don't know the right hand from their left, to find hope that they will never find apart from Jesus Christ. That is the calling that he has given to you and to me. And listen, God knows that it's not going to be comfortable, but it's what we've been called to do. Occasionally, when I'm going through a really uncomfortable season in my life or a very difficult situation, uh, I'll go buy an orange bottle of Fanta. I don't ever drink it because uh, after mopping it up, that's the last thing I want to actually drink. But I'll just set it someplace. I'll set it by my desk or I'll set it someplace in my house. And for a while, it just reminds me that I have a tendency to get out of uncomfortable situations and I can't. That I need to stay in the uncomfortable situation and remain engaged because that's what God has called me to do. It's probably not an orange bottle of Fanta for you, but I want to encourage you to find something equally symbolic to remind you to endure the uncomfortable for the sake of your calling. And as you do, let me give you one final thought of hope. All throughout the story of Jonah, we have seen Jonah get a lot of things wrong. But what Jonah does is Jonah points us to Jesus. And actually, that's the one thing that the beginner's Bible actually gets right. Because as soon as you turn the page from the story of Jonah in the beginner's Bible, the very next page that you turn is the New Testament, and it's the story of Jesus. And that's probably unintentional, but it's what they get right, because Jonah points us to Jesus. What Jonah got wrong, Jesus got right. Jonah ran from the word of God. Jesus was the word of God. Jonah got so focused on his own comfort that he forsake his calling. Jesus gave up his comforts for the purpose of his calling. Jonah sat under a tree and complained to God about people that were far from him. Jesus was nailed to a tree to take the punishment and the consequences for the sin of those who were far from God that included you 
and me so that those of us who put our faith in Jesus would not have to suffer those consequences. And Jonah chose to ran when things got hard, but Jesus chose to stay. And that's the promise that Jesus gives to you and to me. That when we pursue our calling to be his witnesses, the promise that Jesus gives to us is that he will be with us always. And that ultimately will be our true source of comfort. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for this little book of Jonah. And Father, there's so much packed in here, but Lord, it just hits so close to home. And so, Father, I I pray for all of us, Lord, who are in the midst of dealing with and facing uncomfortable situations. Father, I pray that we would look to you to sustain us, to endure those situations, and to see us through. Father, I pray, Lord, for those around us who do not know the right hand from their left. Father, may you choose to use us to share with them the only good news about who you are. And Father, I pray that you would open their eyes to the truth and they would turn their hearts to you. But Father, I pray that that would first be true of us. Lead us to yourself. Remind us, Father, about how deeply you love us and how much grace you have shown to us. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.